Hey guys, and welcome back to the Brown Girl White Coat Podcast. My name is Sai, like a sigh of relief, and I am your podcast host. So in case this is your first time joining us, I am detailing my entire medical school journey. I am a second year medical student at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, though I think we are rebranding to Baylor Med or Baylor Medicine now. I'm not quite sure what's happening with that. But yeah, I'm a medical student in Houston, Texas. I'm starting clinical rotations in January. I am detailing my entire journey. I'm interviewing the movers, shakers, and just influencers in the field of medicine. And I'm so excited to have this little platform, this little corner of the internet, where I can talk about all of these things and I can interview guests that I really admire. And that is exactly what we're gonna be doing here today. So I am joined today by two of my favorite awesome people. They are MD PhDs at Baylor and they have some interesting advice and things to share on the pod. I asked them a bunch of questions about MD PhD. So if you're a student that is currently considering a dual degree program, this is going to be the episode for you because they get into what it takes to apply MD PhD, what schools are really looking for, what they personally did in their undergrad educations, and then continuing throughout medical school, detailing some of the course work and necessary aspects to being a really good candidate for a PhD in the future. So I am talking to them. They are just wonderful people. They give their little favorites and recommendations. We talk about current events and I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this episode. But before we get into today's episode, I would like to go ahead and remind you guys of some easy and might I add free ways to support Brown Girl White Coat. The first one is to go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes. This helps me so much guys. So not only can you review me and tell me what you really think, what you want to hear, what you like and dislike about the podcast, but it helps us get into the iTunes charts. So that's super helpful for me. And I've decided I've gotten some really adorable and lovely reviews on here, and I'm going to go ahead and read one of them each week. So make sure you write a review to get featured on this little segment. So the first review I'm going to read is by Purple Hiccups. I freaking love that username. I don't know why, but the title is Love It. So she writes, I'm pre, or she or he, I guess, I'm not quite sure, Um, but they write, I'm pre-med and I wish I would have found this podcast before college. It's so informative while also being completely reassuring and clear, the ultimate medical school podcast. So thank you so much, Purple Hiccups, and I absolutely love that review. So thank you so much for writing it. Another way to support the podcast is to go ahead and follow us on Instagram. I'm always posting the new guests that are coming up when I'm recording with them. I post on my stories a lot. And I'm always posting little quotes from the episodes and motivation for your week. So the Instagram for the podcast is Brown Girl White Coat Pod. And yeah, go ahead and follow us on there and keep in touch with me on Instagram as well. So thank you guys so much for tuning in and let's just get into this episode. Hello, friends. So today I'm sitting down with MD PhD candidates at BCM, Yajer. Hi. And Snakeba. Hi. Okay, so they're going to help me answer all the questions about why they chose MD-PhD, the benefits of it, future plans, career goals, all of that. And hopefully this will help you if you're considering MD-PhD yourself or another dual degree program. So let's just get into it. So can you guys kind of introduce yourselves and tell us where you went to undergrad, all that stuff, where you grew up? Sure, sure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so yeah, I, my name's Yodger. I'm from San Diego, California originally before coming here to Baylor. Um, and uh, I grew up uh, kind of very interested in technology, uh, but also uh, very passionate about science and medicine. And so as the years went on in undergrad, I kind of uh, started to bridge this idea of like, oh, I can do a degree in medicine, but I can also really follow my passions for technical knowledge. Uh, and combined uh, my undergraduate bioengineering degree with my passions for medicine. And so uh, as time went on, I started to realize like an MD-PhD degree might really be the best path for me uh, in the long run in order to achieve the goals of uh, combining research and medicine. Yeah, I like that. So you're in Houston now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's awesome to be here. As MD-PhDs, we'll be here for a while. So. Uh, eight years at the at the minimum, um, so definitely liking the city and getting used to it. And uh, the transition was interesting from California to Texas. That's another story altogether. But yeah. I definitely am enjoying it here. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Okay, Snigda, where are you from? What was your undergrad degree in? All of that stuff. So I'm originally from Virginia, um, close to D.C., and I went to undergrad in St. Louis at Washington University, and. Um, 
I came straight through. I didn't take any gap years. So now I'm here in Houston, and I really like it so far. Um, I sort of got into MD-PhD mostly because I loved research in undergrad. Yeah, I like always knew I wanted to do medicine, but PhD kind of came later. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that. We'll dive into all of the reasons and benefits of that as well, because mm-hmm. honestly, I'm very curious too, because the, the people that are just doing MDs don't know a lot about your program, so I feel like it's necessary to delve into that. So before we get into kind of the meat of this podcast, we're going to talk about um, our few segments that we have. So the first one is called Setting the Record Straight, and this is where I give you guys three different statements, and you tell me if they're true or false in your opinion. Okay, so this is might be related to our coursework, I'll give you a hint, <laughs> or <laughs> it could also be related to random things. Um, so you'll see there's three different statements. We'll have Yadra go first on the first one, you can go first on the second one, yeah? Sounds good. Okay, so the first one is relevant to our coursework. Um, the statement is, parents should be able to attain for their kids religious and philosophical or personal exemptions from vaccinations. That is true from what I understand, um, especially here in the state of Texas. Okay. What is your personal opinion on it? Should oh. they be able to? Oh, um, I mean, I think that like it's definitely everyone's choice in terms of uh, having the ability to make that uh, the decision. Knowing that there's a lot of people who kind of say it's for religious purposes when it's a personal belief, um, and there's other, you know, uh, maybe illegitimate facts or evidence behind their decision-making process, that's where it gets into a big gray zone, especially with the big anti-vax movement that's going on. And so I think that's something we definitely need to look into, uh, especially because we know how vaccinations work. We know that the more people that get vaccinated, the more effective that round of vaccination is. So I think it's very important that um, policy starts uh, becoming more uh, strict in terms of understanding a lot of people do kind of use this one exemption as a way of not vaccinating their children without fully understanding the repercussions that that decision has on all of us in society. Yeah, totally. What do you think? Uh, I pretty much agree with what Yadra said. I think a big part of changing people's mindsets about vaccines will come from education. Um, I think a lot of times people are afraid that the vaccines will affect their children's health. For example, like Some people believe that the vaccines will cause autism or cause like chronic diseases, Um, but we just learned in class that actually that is not true. Mm -hmm. Vaccines are only going to help those kids um, prevent any illnesses. Mm -hmm. So if there is like a religious reason for not giving the vaccination and there's like a a basis for that belief, I think that you should be able to get that exemption. But... I agree with what Yadger said about making sure that that's the reason and not having that be like an excuse yeah. for not giving your child a vaccine. Or just being misinformed and then right. letting that perpetuate versus mm-hmm. a religious, a legitimate religious mm-hmm. exemption. Totally agree with that. Okay, so second one, kind of unrelated to sciencey things, but cancel culture is okay when it comes to celebrities because they should be held to a higher standard. What do you think? Okay, we're going to explain what cancel culture is real quick. So cancel culture is when someone, it could be a regular person or a celebrity, does something wrong. Like, for example, Gina Rodriguez, who is the um, person on Jane the Virgin. She's like the main actress on there. She was uh, in a video saying the N-word. And now people are saying, you know, Jane the Virgin is canceled. Like, Gina Rodriguez as an actress is canceled because she made this one mistake. So do you think that there's there's room for forgiveness when it comes to celebrities, um, is there room for forgiveness mm-hmm. or do you think cancel culture, what's your opinion on cancel culture, mm-hmm. essentially? I think it's very interesting about how, like, today in today's society, people are very, very opinionated about, like, how one thing is interpreted versus another thing is interpreted. And I think that spans from everything from, like, media and celebrity dumb to, like, politics and our opinions of how certain things are interpreted. And so I think it's, um, you know, very important that in today's day and age, we learn to talk to one another in a productive manner. And that includes apologizing and being able to accept an apology, Um, because not everyone's going to be able to be 100% politically correct, so -hmm. to speak, at all times. And also, if they did have malintent behind those words, uh, then I think 
that changes the perspective on on a lot of these uh, phrasings or words. In my opinion, um, I think you have to go off the person's overall character and realize that people do make poor judgments on what they say and what they do sometimes, but we all need a chance to be able to correct our wrongs. And so completely canceling someone or completely denying all of the work that they've done in the past because of a mistake can be very harmful to one person's entire career. And I believe that everyone deserves at least one shot at being able to fix that or uh, redact that and make that problem or statement that they said into something that is something that's positive and maybe brings awareness to that issue of like, hey, this is not okay. Got it. Yeah. What do you think, Snakes? Um, I also pretty much agree. <laughs> okay, Snake is going to go first. Um, <laughs> you're stealing all of her ideas. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's totally fine. I think that in this day and age, it is very difficult to be a celebrity because everything is recorded and your life is like permanently on display for people. And so it's very hard to be true to yourself and not feel like you might get attacked. Um, however, I do think that it is important to like raise awareness to issues if those do come up. I think that cancel culture shouldn't be as strict as it is necessarily, but I don't think that there's something necessarily inherently wrong with it because there are legitimate reasons why people would be offended by things like that. And I think it's important to like give that gravity as well. Mm -hmm. But at the mm -hmm. same time, totally. have an option for that person to own up to their mistake and in a productive way, kind of like what Yadra was saying. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I I would go as far to say that celebrity should be should be held to a higher standard because, you know, you're in the public eye, mm -hmm. you have young children that are looking mm -hmm. up to you. And mm -hmm. so canceling a celebrity is obviously much easier to us than canceling like people in our own lives that we actually know. Mm -hmm. So I think I think they should be held to a slightly higher standard than the average human. Um, yeah, yeah, I yeah. agree. Okay, last one. Pumpkin spice isn't worth the hype. <laughs> True or false? It's a very interesting question. Um, as we uh, happen to be drinking pumpkin spice coffee that Sai just made for us, um, I would I like to say that uh, anything that reminds me of the fall and the holidays is totally worth it. And uh, as much as pumpkin spice does get a lot of backlash in society, uh, it does bring some wholesome, warm feelings into your yeah. heart. So I'm all for it. <laughs> wellness, right? <laughs> True. Yeah. What about you? Is, is the coffee living up to your hype? I actually really like your coffee. Okay, good. Um, and I didn't really like pumpkin spice, like, in general, but yours is really good. Okay, good. Yay, I love pumpkin spice, so I had to put that one in there. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I just discovered it this fall season. Um, okay, so now we're going to go into our next segment. This is where we give you recommendations or a favorite of the week that we have. So uh, let's start with Singba. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess this is kind of a favorite of my life, but I really like chai, specifically like masala chai, which yes. is basically like black tea that has like like a bunch of spices, like cardamom, cinnamon, clove, that kind of thing. So it's like very fall almost um, mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. I think that like it just brings a lot of like warmth to my family. It's something that like we grew, grew up with um, and it reminds me of home. So that's kind yeah. of my favorite. Uh -huh. I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. And then I think one of my favorite things to do lately um, is like we have a lot of classes in the morning and it's a good time to be productive. Uh, and then sometimes it's a little drag to like try to get through all of your studying through the evening and nighttime. And I found a really good thing that helps me is doing like headspace or meditation mm -hmm. for like 10 minutes right when I get home okay. and kind of making a routine out of it. Um, because that makes it so it's like when I get home, like usually you're tired anyway, you're like exhausted, like I don't want to study right now. So you just put down your backpack and you immediately go to like a quiet place and just do Headspace. Um, and it's a really good app. It's only $10 a year for students. Oh, nice. um, and it allows you to like kind of learn the process of meditation and it guides you through it with the really like low pressure. You know, it's like it just teaches you like, oh, this is this is how I kind of go about breathing. I'm not like working against my thoughts, but working with my thoughts. And so I really like that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I like that. So I was actually using an app. I just started last week called Reflectly. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of similar, but it's more of like an online journaling type thing. But it makes journaling really easy because it like 
lets you put in like your mood, like what made you happy, what made you sad for the day. So it's not like you have to spend a lot of time like doing a whole entry or anything. You just plug in things. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. 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 And you can like add pictures from the day, which is nice to like look back on and be like, that was a really good day. So I will mention one more thing. So I have this lotion from Lush and it's called Sleepy and it actually helps me get to sleep. So really? I'm it gonna works. have you guys smell it. Doesn't it smell good? BRB, gonna take a nap. <laughs> I know. It's, it's <laughs> That's like, really good. It's like lavender, but ah, very yeah, herbal. I was say. Yeah. So with that, we're gonna get into the rest of the podcast. So you guys kind of answered this before the why MD PhD question. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you guys kind of talk about why not just an MD? Can you talk about why you decided to do a dual degree in the first place? Maybe we can start with Snake Okay, sure. Um, So while I was growing up, uh, my mom is a physician, so she was kind of a role model for me, and I decided I wanted to do medicine like pretty early on because of her, I think. Um, And then when I got to undergrad, I was taking these classes, and it's pretty necessary for pre-meds to do research. Um, And so I just got into a lab, and I was like, okay, let's, let's see how this goes. And then research started to become like, this thing that I got super passionate about, like I kind of fell in love with the scientific method Mm -hmm. um, and like being able to like ask a question, develop a really specific hypothesis and then test it and like do it in a systematic way where you could like get to answers about like the fundamental mechanisms behind biology. So I got really interested in research and I sort of just fell really deep, really fast. Yeah. I realized when I was applying for medical school that I couldn't give up research and I almost even like took the GRE and applied for PhD programs. Yeah. But then I realized that I I still loved medicine. So it was kind of like I couldn't choose between the two. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up applying to both. <laughs> yeah, best of both worlds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, was the story similar for you? Yeah, or? I feel like no matter what you do as an MD-PhD candidate, like everyone you talk to that's in the same boat, they're like, yeah, I couldn't give up either one of them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, it really is uh, a life of two loves. And so um, I think for me, similarly, uh, I mentioned that I had a lot of technical sort of passions. I loved iPhones and technology, and so I ended up doing a bioengineering degree at UC San Diego um, because it combined that love I had for science and engineering. Um, And from there, my journey was very uh, much similar. Like I got into labs and I realized that, oh wait, like there's this whole cool world out there of like research and technology. And like um, I started uh, working on projects that involve like low resource healthcare um, and trying to innovate for specifically populations in Tijuana, Mexico for HIV monitoring. And so it got uh, a lot of like, it just had this like little fire burning in me this whole time of like, oh, I could do like this bioengineering thing, but then I also want to really take care of these patients because I was shadowing in clinics. And so it just, it just all came together, just like Snake was saying, where it's like, you, you kind of always have that influence of medicine in the background because like, everyone's telling you to be a doctor like yeah. while you're doing this and then you have like these passions for research and there you go md phd yeah awesome <laughs> yeah. so um i thought we could kind of structure this of like talking about what you guys did in undergrad first and then maybe talking about what the program actually looks like once you get to med school so sure. in undergrad um like what did you have to pursue specifically to be a good candidate for an md phd program yeah that's a great question um so uh, particularly, obviously, like thing that I mentioned, you do have to do research even as an MD candidate. Um, but I think you it takes like a little bit extra on the research side. They mm-hmm. they are looking for some uh, tangible, you know, research that you maybe had uh, a big publication or mm-hmm. you were able to show that you had uh, multiple different publications that you had a lot of different projects going on that you were able to lead in the lab and not just kind of. Uh, pursue other projects that, you know, other grad students had already been working on, um, and that you get a very, like, solid letter of recommendation from your primary PI, um, Mm -hmm. that they really believe that you were a legitimate candidate for someone who could pursue a PhD in terms of research, Um, and that's on the research side, right? Uh, On the other side, you also do have to do everything, you know, an MD candidate is doing, from shadowing um, uh, doctors and physicians and trying to understand um, what a hospital environment is like, what a clinic environment is like, and showing through your essays as well as your own personal passions that like, I really do want to care for people and I can't just do the PhD. Um, I need to also do the MD. Um, and so it's it's really um, 
showing that this combining of worlds uh, through your own personal life, your own passions, like clearly the work that you've done, like you are doing all the work a PhD candidate does and all the work an MD like applicant does, all of it. Yeah. So that way, you know, you, you, you can actually apply to this program and get in, but it shouldn't feel like a work of labor, right? It yeah. should feel like something that those are things that naturally came about during your undergrad process because you couldn't let go of either of those. Yeah. Uh, I think a big thing is figuring out like what you do with your time. I think that's a like huge thing that they look at. They ask you for how many hours you spend on like XYZ mm-hmm. activity on your application. And I think research has to be one of those things that you really prioritize if you want to do an MD-PhD. Um, so I personally did not have any publications coming in, mm-hmm. but um, I went to like conferences and I did like internships that were extremely research focused. Yeah. So it was like another way for me to show that I was very passionate about research. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as Yadra was saying, you also have to kind of make sure that you get all the MD requirements done as well. Um, so the shadowing hours, the classes. Um, doing well on the MCAT. Doing well on the yeah. MCAT. <laughs> Just like compiled. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So you would recommend that pre-meds take part in like basic sciences research? Not Is necessarily. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You can do like other kinds of research as well, as long as you can justify like why why that's important to you. And mm-hmm. if you can relate that to what you want to do in the future, mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. you can do pretty much any kind of research. Yeah. Okay. I mean, my own personal experience, I'm, I was very passionate about translational medicine, being a bioengineer and wanting to do this degree. And so I, my, all of my research was developing a low-cost medical device. Um, well, that's a majority of my research was developing this device and then trying to translate it into clinics in Tijuana, Mexico. So right. it kind of was that whole bench-to-bedside transition that I spent a lot of time on. And so it's definitely something that you can do, especially yeah. if that is what you're interested in. You don't have to feel like you're stuck to one specific type of research or anything. It's really about a passion for research. And yeah. if you can convey that, that's what matters. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't have to be medical either. Um, so my research was extreme basic science. Like I was looking at weekly electric fish and their social behavior. Oh. And that has nothing to do with medicine really, except yeah. for like, I guess it's biology. But um, I think if you can justify it, like if you can show that you're passionate, yeah, um, that looks good. And also it helps you just mentally. Because if you're in doing research in something that you're not passionate about, it's extremely hard. And it's going to show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I tell my undergraduate friends all the time about this is like when you're an undergraduate, the chances of you doing the exact research in undergrad as like a PI one day or like as someone who's like in the field, is like almost zero. Right. So what your undergrad research experience should really be about is like being in a good lab that's going to mentor you and grow you as a scientist, show you the scientific method and make you feel passionate about that. Um, and then like going in, like feeling excited to go into lab every day because you like are going to need to go into lab often, right? And yeah. so it's about that that healthy, productive lab environment and finding a lab like that's like that more than anything else. Um, so that way, like think this and you are excited to go into lab every day. Yeah, completely. So I just want to ask you guys because I think I've answered this question a few times on the pod and like about different aspects of it, but a lot of people are always concerned in undergrad, like how do I go about even finding research and how do I go about finding research that is going somewhere? So mm-hmm. how do you go about finding those opportunities? Did you just kind of cold email people or mm-hmm. look into like any mentors? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I spent a lot of time initially like asking around. Like mm-hmm. I was when I was a freshman, I was like, oh, who has a cool lab doing this or that? Um, and initially I actually ended up in a lab that was more focused on like I was very interested in orthopedics at the time because mm-hmm. my mom had some bone issues and so um, from there like I started to realize that like I that lab wasn't really as productive as I wanted it to be it wasn't translating projects like I wanted it to and that was my freshman and sophomore year right mm-hmm. and so I started to realize a lot of these things you're talking about as I went through my undergrad process like I wanted a project that was going somewhere and that I felt like I was in a healthy environment where people really wanted me to be on their projects and uh, unfortunately like it does matter if you do get on papers or don't get on papers so you want I wanted to try to get on a paper right so mm-hmm. 
Um, I ended up uh, going to the like events uh, where PhD students were presenting posters, um, and one of those events was called Lab Expo. And so I on campus I found like this event, um, and then I went around. I think face to face interaction helps a lot more than the cold email. Um, and I was able to get a coffee with one of the grad students that I ended up working in their lab for. And so um, that was essentially the big like pivot point for me my sophomore year. I was finding mm-hmm. this uh, going around and like trying to meet PhD students presenting and then face to face being like, hey, like, is there positions in your lab? I'm interested in the same research that you're presenting on. Um, do you want to get coffee? Mm-hmm. And I think that was a really healthy way to figure out. Like, what's, what are the PhD students like? Are they invested in undergraduate, undergraduate students? Um, what is the PI like? Uh, how would I even get into the lab? What's a good way to, like, make a good impression on the PI? Because the grad students really know everything. Yeah, you know? So and they'll be honest with you. And they will be honest with you. So it's a good, I think that was a good way for me to figure out what I wanted. Yeah. I honestly, I think that that's probably the best way to do it. I personally just cold emailed people yeah. and um, got really lucky um, I had, I like selected my, the PIs that I emailed based on like reputation, what they did and like what I'd heard about their mentorship and teaching experience. And I ended up with a really great mentor, but I think that the way that Yadra did it would probably be like a much better way to like select a lab because the grad students really do know everything about the lab and you can really like figure out like what your fit is. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree because I, I did research in undergrad as well, but it was um, I also just cold emailed and um, kind of got stuck doing like brunt work of the lab, not really like involved in my own project, and so it took more campaigning on my part to like be like you know I am really interested and I want to do this, so highly recommended what Yadir said. Or <laughs> you can take your chances and get lucky too, which yeah, I yeah, personally yeah. didn't. But <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. I think I think it's uh, there's no wrong way as long as you are acknowledging your own like standards of what you want to achieve within the lab. So yeah. like things I said, like cold emailing totally works yeah. as long as you recognize like I want to be in a lab that eventually lets me do X Y Z. Right. Yeah. Totally. So let's talk about the interview process and maybe how, or interview and application process and how it might have differed from just applying MD. So interviewing, what was that like? Or what, what is the application even like? Yeah. I don't even know. It's a lot of extra essays. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got it. Um, so yeah, so you have the same like YMD essay. Yeah. Um, but then on top of that, you have a significant research essay which is like an in-depth, like, uh, like almost like autobiography about your research experience. Oh my gosh. Um, and I think through that, like they're trying to, you're trying to convey that you do understand your project at a technical level. Um, but then also you had some big milestones that you came away with some life lessons mm-hmm. during that significant research essay. Cause they want to see your growth as a researcher as much as they want to see that, Hey, like you can talk the talk and you know about your own research. Cause it's no fun just like, you know, just uh, reading about an essay where it's just like all technical yeah. work, like, you know, like that's not what necessarily what they're looking for. And they do not, they don't want someone who's just like all about milestones and fluffiness. They want to see right. that you do know um, technical things uh, about your own research. Um, and so that's the significant research essay. And then there's also a YMD PhD essay. Um, and that's kind of where you talk about like your, like your two loves, kind of like what Yadra was saying. And those are like the, like in the primary application that you send out with like the regular YMD essay. And then after that, you get secondaries. And in the secondaries, there are also extra essays to do. Mm -hmm. A lot of those extra essays are just like, talk about your research, like what are you interested in? And like, why our school for research? That's like a really big thing. A lot of times they ask you to list like different PIs at that school that you're interested in working with. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah. really important for the MD-PhD programs to make sure that, that you're a good match for their school as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so having done prior research on the PIs that are there, uh, making it clear that the specific strengths of the school match your strengths as well, um, tend to be like a good way to make sure like you make a good impression on them during just the application, the written application, so you get invited for the interview. Right. Um, I would say that like, you generally most MD PhDs will apply broadly 
you know, um, just because it is a very competitive program, just like a, a med an M- MD program is, right? Um, but what I found, at least in my own personal experience, is that the schools that I ended up getting into were the schools that I was most passionate about. And yeah. I think that came across during the application and, of course, the interview as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the interview process, is it similar? They, they ask you all of the same questions that they kind of asked on essays. Are there any, like, weird curveballs they throw at you? I would say it's a lot lengthier than the regular MD um, interview process. Uh, I know, for example, at Baylor, uh, they had um, two interviews for like the MD uh, portion, where like two different physicians kind of interview mm-hmm. you during the interview day. Yeah. And what the way the MD PhD interview works is like you show up uh, like a day and a half beforehand. Um, so you have like the dinner um, with the MD PhD program. You really like get to know the other MD-PhD applicants, or sorry, yeah. candidates throughout all, all eight years. Um, and then the first day you're there, you're actually doing uh, interviews with uh, physician scientists and PIs who are doing research. And yeah. students. And students, mm-hmm. yeah. So the students are also interviewing us. Um, and so that whole process of like, that whole extra day of interviews was I think pretty standard across all of the interviews I went to, um, where there was a, almost a full day of like, interviewing you about your research mm-hmm. um, and then another day where they're interviewing you for your like MD um, application and some of those schools had it intertwined where it was like all together but generally speaking the interviews lasted two days rather than one day from from what I understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big thing about the MD-PhD interview is uh, they like to try to match you up with people who that who you said you were interested in on your application oh. So, like, you might be interviewing with your future thesis mentor, potentially. So that's really cool. Like, you get to, like, talk to them about their research and, like, connect on your passion. Yeah. Which is, I thought, was a really great Mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. Is Um, that the person that actually ended up being your mentor that you interviewed with? So we actually haven't chosen our mentors yet. Oh, yeah. But, um, like, potentially. Okay, cool. And for me, like, personally, like, uh, the I'm going to be doing my PhD at Rice Bioengineering because uh, it's a dual degree, like, combined program between Rice University and Baylor College of Medicine. Okay. Um, and so the Rice Bioengineering faculty that, like, I was interviewing with, like, I'm pretty close with now. And I've actually gone to those individuals and been like, okay, so I'm interested in your work, but I'm also interested in who you think would be a good fit for me now that you know what I like what I'm interested in and so I've just establishing that closer contact uh during the interview process made it really easy to like then go to those individuals and be like who else what should I do (laughs) yeah yeah oh my gosh that's so cool so let's talk about like coursework and like once you finally got into med school because we're kind of already talking about that so how does the coursework differ or what else is there in addition to your MD coursework that you have so um, before we reach clinics, we have like a couple classes to take. Um, it's usually like about an hour per week. Okay. It's not a whole lot. And then there are some afternoon lectures as well that are interspersed. But they generally try to like take your schedule into account and they don't give you too much. They never give you too much, which okay. is a blessing. Like the people at our administrative like department are truly amazing they take so much care and thought when they're putting together the schedules and it really honestly does not feel like a burden at all Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. if anything i'm really excited because usually we'll have like one lunch uh, meeting every week um, and that isn't like elective or right now um, it's for us to help figure out what PhD we want to do and like what departments um, so we're interested in. So like the departments will come present about their own, you know, uh, like what, what they're good at and what kind of things that yeah. they pro- like they provide. To like recruit you yeah, guys essentially. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of cool wanting to be wanted. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, it's always a pleasure just coming and do like for that one hour lunch every week because it's a great opportunity to hang out with my MD, PhD friends. Yeah. Um, and we are the only ones that will be here for eight years, so yeah. <laughs> it's nice to get to... Can you to... guys talk about, like, what what those eight years consist of? Like, how many years you have of MD, then when, at what point you go to PhD, all that stuff? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so you actually, for the first two years, you're preclinical, um, like a med student, just like uh, every other Baylor MD student. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, at Baylor, we do 18 months of actual preclinical coursework, and then you start doing clinical work um, in the hospital. So because of that uh, spe- like special schedule that Baylor has, um, the MD-PhD students also get in about six months of clinical work. Um, before we finish our second year of MD and we take our step one exam. Once we take that, which is in July, uh, we start with the other PhD students uh, during our our second year um, as a first year PhD student, right? Um, And so this is years three through six, essentially. So those four-ish years, you're doing a PhD. Some people take longer, some people take shorter. Um, I know Baylor's average time is around like 4.2 two years or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it really depends on um, the you, like the specific PI you're working with, your specific project. Um, and so that PhD span can be longer than four years. So some people in might end up taking a total of nine or even 10 years, depending on how long your project takes. But most people um, generally will graduate in eight because after you do your PhD in four years, you'll come back for clinics for your last two years of your MD. And so it goes two, four, two is kind okay, of like the, yeah. the general breakdown. Okay, cool. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're here for a while. Get, <laughs> you guys ever get that? Like, oh, it's such a long journey. Like, Every time. time. <laughs> like any person, everyone you talk to in your family, everyone's like, wait, you're doing a full PhD degree? It's like actually yeah. you know, like four whole years. I'm just like, yes, eight <laughs> years. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Like, I'm not freaking out about it. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, totally. So did you guys ever consider any other dual degree programs? Is that ever on the radar or not really? No, not personally. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wondering. yeah, yeah. It's just PhD was always the the thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, can you guys talk about like what you want to do with both degrees, like in the future, what kind of physician you see yourself being, and how much time you spend, you imagine spending on research versus um, being like a practicing physician. Yeah. So the thing that they say is um, if you want to be a successful physician scientist, you want to do 80-20, like 80% of your time will be devoted to research and your lab. And then 20 would be like clinical practice. So I think I see myself doing that in the future. Uh, But my like ultimate dream is to be able to see a patient and like take a sample and go back to lab and figure out what's going on with them. Yeah. And then be able to come back to them with, like, concrete ideas of how to best treat them. Yeah. Like, that would be my ultimate, ultimate dream. Yeah. If I could do that in the future, I would be so happy. Yeah. Um, probably mostly will be in lab if I get funding and everything works <laughs> out. We'll also be seeing patients who have um, disorders or diseases that are the same as what I'm doing research on. I think that's... I see. Mm -hmm. So do you see yourself working with more, like, under-researched diseases to, like, work that in? That is a very hot topic right now, and I think I personally would love to do that. Um, And Baylor is really great for that, actually. Um, They're part of the Undiagnosed Disease Network, or the UDN, where um, people whose uh, conditions have not really been studied or known about, they kind of... Uh, so like a- apply to be part of this UDN and then people start studying them like they figure out like okay what's going on like what are some drug targets that could help with like therapy yeah and then it's actually like been really successful okay um like people with I believe it was SMA was SMA I don't, I don't remember. Oh, yes. Yeah. Is this what Dr. Goodman was telling yes. us about in yeah. that one lecture? Yes. Mm-hmm. They they came up with, like, Nusnersen, I think. That sounds familiar. They essentially, um, mm-hmm. like, cured, like, babies with SMA, right? Yes. Like, they have a much mm-hmm. longer, like, And this was part of the now. UDN. Like, that oh, was wow. part of their effort. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. And I think it would be a really cool, like, place to be in the future. Yeah. But, of course, I don't know where things are going to go in the future, so yeah, I'll keep my options open. Totally, yeah. 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 And I think, um, I'll, I'll like to add that, like, I think the very traditional route of what most MD-PhDs kind of see themselves doing is eventually 
doing residency and then following that up with a fellowship and kind of always having research be intertwined throughout the residency and fellowship, mm -hmm. eventually getting into a role where they are a PI at a university and then working their way up to like the academic ladder, yeah. um, getting more funding and building up a lab that way. Um, and that's pretty much the like the, the traditional path. I will say like I personally, because of my past like experiences um, within the tech space, like I've also looked into um, being an MD PhD who works in industry, mm -hmm. um, and that is another niche that MD PhD students uh, are looking into more and more these days because like the startup field is rapidly growing. It is a cool place to be. Um, and so uh, there are a lot of MD PhDs who potentially even like, though they're working in labs are combining with industry partners or are in industry and combining with academic partners and because of our degree it does allow for that fluid transition uh, and allowing us to like be able to speak both languages yeah. in, in each in each area so um, I think that is one of the powers of the degree and that is something that I personally am also looking into um, beyond uh, kind of following the traditional path I, I talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I had no idea that that was such an up-and-coming thing for mm -hmm. MD-PhDs to like go that route. Yeah, so. yeah. It's, it's a smaller niche, but it's definitely like, I, I'd say maybe like 5 to 10% of people kind of looking into that area in yeah. that space as well. I think yeah. it's growing for sure, yeah. yeah. Cool. So... As we're beginning to wrap up, I wanted to ask, what exactly does the PhD allow you to do that maybe an MD couldn't do? Because, I mean, I plan on probably getting involved with research in the future as well, but like to what degree does that, you know, those three extra letters like elevate you to, you know, take part more specifically in research? Yeah, I think that is kind of, you kind of put it into perfect words is like a lot of people will just look at those three letters and like elevate you into positions of like, right, oh, so you know, like they know research, you know, right. and that I think is um, hard to qual qualify because like there is obviously there's amazing like MD doctorates who are also really ad adept at like research and yeah. like um, my personal PI in undergrad, like he was an MD um, but he ran a full like HIV resource lab and like, you know, so it's like he, it, I, I will say that there if you are passionate about research You don't necessarily need to do the PhD in order to be a successful researcher, yeah. right? But what I will say is that with the PhD behind you like you like other people understand at face value that you have gone through the rigorous process of uh, doing a thesis and getting, you know, the research, uh, like scientific method down. And so, um, it's, it's kind of like, I always talk about like keys and locking doors in life. Like as much as you think like as a, as a bat, like a, a, an undergrad degree, like you, now you can like learn almost everything you did in undergrad online at like free MIT, like courses and stuff like that. Yeah. But you still want to get that degree because it allows you to unlock that next key to the next door in life. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you, and there's a reason for that. It does, like, those degrees do provide, like, a significant, like, uh, you know, sort of proof that you did go through this entire process in a rigorous way. Yeah. Um, and so that, I'd say, like, that is something that the PhD will help you with. It allows you to kind of become that, uh, you know, future postdoc slash eventual PI with like those three letters behind you and people do take you slightly more seriously um, and, yeah. and and that's just kind of how it is um, so yeah yeah I agree pretty much with what Yadger said I think also the PhD also sort of teaches you how to do certain things that are really necessary for scientists such as like writing grants I think that's like a huge a huge skill that we're gonna learn in mm -hmm. the PhD mm -hmm. and that um, that will definitely like be very instrumental to future success as a researcher right um, but again that's not to say that MDs can't be good at research and can't do really good research I am very confident that like even as an MD that you would be able to excel in the research field in the future um, but the PhD just helps give a little more structure to the training process to becoming a good researcher, I think. Right, totally. Yeah, that's a really good answer, guys. So kind of one of my last questions, are there specific specialties that you might lean more into because you are doing MD-PhD? Yeah, actually, that is something that's talked about a lot when you're like doing second look and like kind mm -hmm. of going through it because 
I know for uh, a fact, like, in general, like, surgery is something that's a lot harder to do or, like, talked about as, like, something that's harder to do as an MD-PhD um, simply because, like, it is a lot more, like, you have an extra few years of residency and then, like, you, you know, as an MD-PhD, you're already spending eight years in, in like, school um, before you even get to residency. So a lot of people are like, oh, like, can I do surgery or, like, is that something that I want to do? So generally, like, it's not that you can't. Um, if you really are passionate about surgery, I know, like, there are stories of, like, uh, for example, like a neurosurgeon who, like, mm -hmm. was working on a very specific disease, like I think they said, like, gets a sample from the actual patient that they're working on and then, like, is able to take it back to the lab. Um, but no matter what, like, just because of the fact that you are likely spending more time in lab than you are with your patients, mm -hmm. um, because that is the kind of given sort of, um, like, that, that is what doing research requires. It requires more time. Yeah. Um, that does limit your ability in terms of, like, all, like, looking at all of the clinical sort of specialties and realizing in order to have an effective work-life balance and a lifestyle balance, you do need to take into the fact that, like, I can't do a specialty that requires me to be on call like 24 seven. Like right. I do need something that like is something a little bit more balanced with my like research lifestyle. Right. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. I think surgery is like the big one that people talk about because for surgery, you kind of have to be in the OR very, very consistently to keep your technical skills up. Mm -hmm. And so if you're spending 80% of your time in the lab, it's very hard to like maintain both of those skill sets at the same time. That's not to say that you can't do it. If mm -hmm. you're really passionate about it, you can make it work. Mm -hmm. um, and like that 80-20 rule doesn't apply to everyone, yeah, right? In practice, like there are PIs who will spend maybe 60-40. Mm -hmm. And it really is about carving out your own niche and your own like whatever works for you and making sure that works with your department that you're working with yeah. uh, and the hospital that you're working with. And as yeah. long as you can show that you provide a lot of value, which most MD-PhDs provide a lot of value yeah. to the institution that they're a part of, um, then I think it's, uh, you can make almost any lifestyle work for you. Um, and therefore like almost any subspecialty work for you. So yeah. I think it's, it really is about, uh, if you're passionate about something, we're at that point in our lives where we can kind of chart our own careers, right. um, and making it work for ourselves and our families as well as our careers is part of the process. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Awesome guys. So I have one last question. I always ask this to all of my guests and we'll start with Stingo this time. Um, do you have any words or parting words, words of advice for pre-med students? Just in general, it doesn't really have to relate to MD-PhD, but people that are applying, anything you have for them. Sure, um, I think one big thing is making sure that you find things that you're passionate about. I think that's like probably the biggest thing that I could take away from my undergrad experience. So I majored in neuroscience uh, because I was passionate about it. And also the, the courses required for it were helping me to attain all the prereqs for the medical school application. But then I also double majored in Spanish and minored in medical humanities because I realized that, you know, I had so many other interests. And I think that ended up being a huge plus for me when people met me and talked to me about my application, being a well-rounded person and pursuing your passion because at the end of the day, like they're really looking for someone who is willing to go after their passion. And if you can show that you did that in undergrad and that you're doing that when you apply for medical school, um, that's like probably my biggest uh, piece of advice for people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like, that was, like, a huge part of, like, even going through the interview process and reflecting on your, like, four years of undergrad and maybe your gap year as well. It's, like, like I look at my, like, experience there and I'm, like, oh, I was really passionate about all this. And it came out during the interview in the second look process. It's just, like, you know, so people really, really do um, go off of that energy that you have about your own passions. Um, in terms of my own, like, uh, advice for a uh, a pre-med student, I would say, like, don't take everything so seriously. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. <laughs> I was very, very, like, um, I have to do well on this and I have to do well on that in order to, like, become this, like, doctor and this PhD student that I wanted to be. And, like, I found that as time went on, like, throughout, like, sophomore year and junior year, um, and I kind of slowed down a little, 
it gave me a more of an opportunity to be like, uh, you know what, like, I don't need to take everything so seriously. And I think I found a lot of my successes after that point where, you know, I was a little bit more relaxed and happy to just enjoy the journey and the process of becoming a a good researcher, a good, you know, pre-med student and eventually a doctor one day. It gave me more opportunities like when I was in the clinics, shadowing in clinics that like I actually really connected with the patients that I was like uh, getting an opportunity to visit. Um, And so I think when you take that time to like take everything less seriously is like a like a chore or a task in order to get into medical school then like all of a sudden you start to maybe enjoy the process more and yeah. then it it just flows it like you, you just naturally become the candidate that you kind of wanted to be mm-hmm. yeah. and i think also like finding people who have done it before is super helpful if you find someone who's doing what you want to do in the future just go up to them and talk to them and like yeah. figure out what they did to get there because it worked once. It's probably going to work again. <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah. There is a big supply need for doctors. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. A trend that I've seen on social media lately is people posting like things about their pre-med advisors, like saying, you know, like they told me I wouldn't get in or they told me like, you know, once I have a C on my application, like it's just, no one will look at it. Mm-hmm. And so I feel mm-hmm. like if you can find someone, there's tons of people that have done it before mm-hmm. with like maybe not so stellar grades or not so stellar research or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. right? So I feel like if you can find someone who's done that before, there's like always that hope. Whereas like pre-med advisors might not know the whole story. They might not mm-hmm. have reached out to enough people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going off statistics, right? Yeah. They're going off of like the the, the trophy candidate of right. like, you know, someone who was able to achieve it all. And right. we, we all have our own paths and our own journeys, yeah. and that's what makes us special. And yeah. more and more these days, people are looking to interview and invite students who are just normal human beings into their schools yeah. rather than like these cookie-cutter perfect applicants. Yeah. Um, because it makes for a better like lifelong journey that way. Like yeah, we all have challenges. Exactly. And better people, like people, people. Exactly. <laughs> you, know? you know. So. Um, absolutely. But yeah. So I think with that, we will go ahead and end this episode. But thank you guys so much for joining me. This was super fun. Yeah, thank you for having us. It was. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, Yeah, of course. So now we're going to go back to probably studying. Yep. Yep. Thank you guys so much for joining me on this week's episode of Brown Girl White Coat. And as always, I'm easily accessible through Instagram at Cybear or at Brown Girl White Coat Pod. And I will leave those usernames in the show notes as well. But in the meantime, let me know what you want to hear. Do you want to hear another episode with a dual degree program student, maybe an MD MPH or an MD MBA? Um, Do you want to hear more interviews with physicians or do you want to hear me talk more about my med school journey and personal life and personal things? Um, Let me know what you want to hear. DM me on Instagram and make sure you review us on iTunes and Apple podcasts. So thanks for making this podcast a part of your day wherever you are. (laughs) 